I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. It's exam season again, so this week we'll be delving into the depths of memory for some tips on boosting your brain. Plus, prosthetic fingers that can actually feel, the sacred art of origami gets a DNA update, and I'll be finding out whether giant pandas really don't fancy getting frisky. I'm Kat Arney. And I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's start with a look at the news. And Professor Magdalena Zernitzka-Gertz got personal with her science after a test during her pregnancy left her worried for the health of her baby. The chorionic villa sampling, or CVS test, is offered to pregnant women whose babies are at a high risk of having a genetic condition like Down syndrome. It's done in the early stages of pregnancy and cells from the placenta are analysed for abnormalities as a proxy for problems in the embryo. However, until now there's been very little understanding of what the results of this test might actually mean. Magdalena explained to Naked Scientist Connie Orbach how she has been on a mission to find answers for mothers-to-be everywhere. I was not a very young mother, so I decided to do a pregnancy test that you can do for the very first time when you are three months pregnant. And to our total surprise and um, yeah, and trauma, we found out that as men as 25% in the placenta, which was um, holding my baby, Simon and me, uh, together, uh, were unemployed with specific genetic abnormality. This was a trisomy of the chromosome number two, that means that we have an additional copy of chromosome number two, which is one of our major chromosomes. So many, many genes lie on that chromosome. So this was the result, and obviously does not mean that the baby will have this the same abnormality. But nevertheless, it's extremely worrying when you find out that a quarter of your placenta might be abnormal, and you wonder to which extent you should worry about your baby abnormality. So just before we go on, I think I need to find out what happened during your pregnancy. I mean, I had another test a month later. It was quite stressful, but this test was normal, so I was relieved by that. And indeed, Simon was uh, born a few years ago normal. But I imagine that scientists not only use logic in their life, but also emotions and this emotional stress... And logic altogether made me very determined to redirect my research and find a, a way that we can experimentally address that situation in the mouse, of course, because it's not possible to do it with human embryos. But whatever we find uh, on mouse embryos, uh, it's very likely to be true for human embryo development, as this stage of development is, looks extremely similar. So we make so-called chimeras. We put some normal cells together with abnormal cells, and we film development in the first instance. And what we found, which was absolutely incredible, so they were one of the happiest news we had at the time, is that those abnormal cells were preferentially eliminated by program cell death. So it means that they really died at the part of the embryo that will make a fetus. So watching the development of this embryo that you'd created, which was part abnormal, part normal, you saw that actually the abnormal cells were selectively dying. That's right, exactly. Did you take these mice to birth? So the next step was to identify the dream answer to the question how many normal cells we have to have 
at that stage, the first few days of our life, for embryo to be normal. So we try to establish it by making embryos in which we have one-to-one ratios, so one abnormal, one normal, or we had two-thirds of abnormal cells and one-third of normal cells, so very small proportion of normal cells. And we found that even in those cases, some of those embryos entirely corrected themselves or when born as normal mice. So even in the cases there were just few normal cells at this stage of our life, they were still able to populate those cells which were abnormal and dying. So your case of 25%, and, and yes, this is still a mouse model, but your case of 25% was actually the really small proportion of the number of abnormalities that you could have to still survive and have a perfectly healthy baby. That's right. So even if it was that it was 25% or 50% of my cells that will give rise to Simon were abnormal, they would be eliminated. What does this mean about this test that, that people are doing? Should they still bother doing the test? Is this an unnecessary worry for people? Well, it depends what one uh, do this test for. So, for example, if the whole population of cells tested by CVS would show abnormalities, then obviously that's a very worrying sign. If the test shows that there is no abnormality, then it's fantastic news because there is nothing to worry about. So essentially our result adds to the reflection on what this test really means and how careful we have to be in interpreting results of that test. But also what um, this particular paper shows is that we try to... uh, now reveal the mechanism by which those cells are eliminated and by which normal cells take over and repair the gap which was generated. So this is extremely intriguing and important scientific problem, how the cells compete against each other, how they substitute for each other when there are some cells that die, and we try to understand the process by which it happens. In terms of your own experience and what brought you here... How does this feel that you've you've now kind of solved this mystery that caused such a bad time in your life? Well, I think it's extremely reassuring that such a traumatic event in my own life can bring some good news and at the end of the day help the other mothers to be um, and how they feel about their pregnancy, even if they receive the bad news as I did receive them a long time ago. That was Magdalena Zhenitskogertz, Professor of Mammalian Development and Stem Cell Biology at Cambridge University. Now... If you have to have your hand amputated, the current generation of prostheses can only go so far in replacing what you've lost. They can restore some of the look and the movement of that missing body part, but not the sense of fine touch that can tell, for example, whether something is rough or smooth. And this is critical for manipulating objects correctly. But now we're a step closer to restoring this missing sensation, thanks to a bionic finger that uses piezo-resistive sensors, those are sensors that respond to pressure, to detect surface textures and turn them into nerve signals that an amputee's brain can understand. Calagero Oddo is its creator, and he spoke about it to Chris Smith. The natural skin has receptors internally that are the transducers, the physical interaction of our hand with the external world, they transform into a sequence of neural signals that are then conveyed to the nerves and then arrive through the nerves up to the brain and represent the tactile information to our brain so that we can have a percept. What is the material that you're working with that is capable of, of discerning 
textural features or, or how rough a surface is? What are you making these things from? The system is multi-layer. So we have this uh, rubber that covers the sensor. The sensors are made of silicon, which is like uh, glass, which has inside piezo resistors that transform mechanical information, so the external information, into the electrical signal. Then this is acquired by embedded electronics that converts this information into digital. And then there is an artificial neuron model that keeps the continuous waveforms that are acquired from the artificial sensors and transforms into the spikes that are those on-off events to stimulate the nerves. How do you teach your computer program what each surface feels like and then how do you marry its recognition of that surface and its output of of spikes into the nervous system so that it's putting them into the right pattern of spikes which which is what would happen in an intact individual someone with a normal hand this is done by the technique that is minimally invasive to record from the nerves of the intact subjects when they touch naturally the surfaces. We are learning how the natural code is uh, arranged in correspondence to particular uh, experiences, and then we try to emulate. So in essence, what you do is you're recording what sorts of patterns of nerve activity a person gets when they run their natural skin over the same surface, and then when your new detectors experience that same surface contour, you just generate the same nerve output of spikes, and that's what you're going to put into the nervous system. Yes, this is exactly what we are doing. The nice thing is that uh, our finger is not specialized to the surfaces that we tested in this experiment. But in principle, if we test other surfaces, it it is able to generalize. So it is able to reconvert the other surfaces into different sets of uh, spikes that then the brain can interpret and recognize. How do you get the signals from your bionic finger back into the nervous system of the amputee in the first place? there was an implanted interface that allowed the stimulus to be delivered to the nerve. What we do is insert into the nerves electrodes, like wires, to electrically connect the nerve. If you actually do the experiment and you take the output from your system and you apply it to the nervous system of an individual, does it really feel to a normal human that that surface is the one that they they should be feeling. This was uh, declared by Dennis, one of the amputee subjects that tested the technology. Uh, He said exactly this, not 100%, but it makes sense to his brain, meaning that he was able to interpret the stimulus and to imagine the stimulus in pictures. That's Collegero Oddo from the University of Pisa. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Georgia Mills and she's Katani. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can find us on Facebook. Still to come, why the phrase sleep on it is very sound advice and I'm going to be busting the myth that pandas have a low libido. But first, on average, if you're male, your life expectancy is likely to be shorter than if you're female. And some diseases seem to affect one sex more commonly than the other. So can the humble fly tell us why? Jenny Regan explained to Chris Smith why she thinks it can. In researching ageing, something that really sticks out is that females live longer than males. 
in addition to this, when we did some manipulations that could extend lifespan, there are some manipulations that extend female lifespan very well, but don't do anything for males. Specifically, the one that we were interested in is putting animals on a diet. This can really extend the lifespan of females, but males derive much less benefit from being on a diet than females do. So how did you pursue that? We used the fruit fly Drosophila. What we actually started out doing was switching sex in various tissues. To do this, we took advantage of something which is particular to Drosophila biology, which is that each cell individually specifies its own sex. So we could harness this particular feature to switch sex just in specific cell types or specific tissues around the fly. And we wanted to see if having a female organ in a male fly would be able to let the males get this kind of lifespan extension that the females get in response to diet. So what organ did you do this sex switching on? We looked at uh, the liver analogue, we looked in blood, uh, we looked in brain, and uh, finally we looked at the gut. And when we feminised the male gut and then put these flies on a diet, what we saw was that the males then responded to being on a diet and their lifespan was extended. If one studies the the natural history of ageing in these flies, males versus females, and you look specifically at the gut, are there clear differences between what happens in the males and what happens in the females as they age in that organ? Yes, there is, and and this is something that we did um, in parallel. We started to look at the guts of of ageing males and ageing females. And when we started out, we expected that we might see males had worse guts than females because males are shorter lived than females. But actually what we found was that um, male guts are really well preserved as they age. And this is in real contrast to females. Um, and when we looked at females overaging, we saw a real spectacular decline. So we saw wounds appearing in the gut and we saw small tumours appearing in the gut as well. Can you explain why, therefore, on the basis of your observations, you see this difference between how long males live and how long females live and why calorie restriction makes a difference? When we looked at female guts, um, females who had been on a diet actually had better guts than females who had been fed a full complement of food. And so those restricted diet females had fewer small tumours and fewer wounds in their gut, so it looked like they were really better off from from being on a diet. So we started to understand that perhaps this difference that people observed for the last few decades might be explained by the fact that the the guts respond very differently, i.e. the males don't really get much of a benefit from being on a diet, whereas the females do. What is it about the female biology that means that their gut benefits in this way that the males don't? Well, the females, they're really egg machines, especially towards the earlier part of their lifespan. They're laying hundreds of eggs a day. Um, So it's really important for them to be able to get as much nutrition from food as possible. And some related studies recently have shown that females can grow their guts spectacularly when required to do so by the demands of egg production. So it seems that females have more of a reason um, to have active stem cells in their gut. Um, It also uh, is true that females, when their guts are challenged, so by an infection, their guts respond much more than males do in the sense that they repair their guts faster or they switch on stem cells to actively divide more than males do. And we think that this is probably the root of, of the difference that we see in the male. 
It's not that their gut lets them down. It's something else that's making them age and die prematurely compared with the females. And if you sorted out the guts in the females, they would live even longer. Yeah, absolutely. For females, the gut and the deterioration of the gut is really important. But for the males, it looks like something else is important. And we think that this could be they don't respond as well to microbial challenge. So this could be something which is more of an issue for males than it is for females. UCL's Jenny Reagan there. Now it's time for our regular myth conception. And as spring and maybe love is in the air, Kat's been finding out if pandas just don't fancy it. Well, Easter, or rather springtime, has been associated with fertility in human culture for many thousands of years. It's not for nothing that we have Easter bunnies and Easter eggs, and the arrival of longer, warmer days is guaranteed to get the sap rising. But while bunnies are often said to have no problems in the reproductive department, giant pandas are allegedly terrible at romance, which apparently explains their poor track record at producing panda babies. But a new study from US-based conservation researchers working at the Chengdu Giant Panda Breeding Centre in China must be the best place ever, suggests that this might not be true. Pandas do enjoy getting frisky, but only if they actually fancy the other panda in the partnership. Thanks to poaching and destruction of their natural habitat, giant pandas are an endangered species with just a couple of thousand left in the wild. The only hope to save the pandas is to breed them in captivity. But although the Chinese breeding centre does manage to churn out super cute baby pandas on a fairly regular basis, this hasn't been quite the roaring success that researchers might have hoped. And panda pairs in zoos seem to be extremely reluctant to get down to it, as witnessed by the roller coaster of excitement and disappointment around Chan Chan, Edinburgh's zoo's female panda, and her possible pregnancies. When breeding giant pandas in captivity, conservationists tend to try and pair up animals with the lowest levels of genetic similarity or relatedness to try and avoid inbreeding. But researcher Megan Martin-Wintle noticed that if a female panda at the Chengdu Centre was given the choice of two males, one of which had good different genes and one with more similar genes, she tended to ignore the genetically ideal male and lavish her affections on the other one. And if she was encouraged to breed with the genetically preferable male, they either didn't manage to get it on or she didn't manage to get pregnant. But if she was allowed to get up close and personal with the panda she fancied the most, the female was twice as likely to give birth to a cub. And if the attraction was mutual, there was an oppressive 80% chance that love would be in the air, with an equally high success rate in producing panda cubs. There are other factors at play here too, including whether the pandas had been hand-reared by humans, along with their age and size. Turns out that being a larger, older male gives you a better chance of becoming a panda dad. So it seems that the pandas and their sex lives have been unfairly maligned by the media. Turns out they're just like the rest of us. If you want to get frisky, it helps if you fancy the other party or other panda. Thanks, Kat. And Kat will be back next week with another myth conception. Now, origami, the ancient art of paper folding, is popular all over the world as a way of relaxing or expressing creativity. But a new type of origami, which is making waves in science, celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. Georgia has the story. Scientists in Cambridge are currently using origami to make structures which could change the face of drug delivery. There's just one twist. It's not paper they're using. 
We are assembling DNA into arbitrary two- and three-dimensional shapes on the nanoscale. So we are literally building with the building blocks of nature, so to speak. That's Kirsten Gerpfrig, who's working on this technique at the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge, and she kindly agreed to show me around. But first, I wanted to know why anyone would want to use DNA to build with. What makes DNA a good building structure is, first of all, its availability. It's safe to use, you get it everywhere. It's very cheap and it's very easy to process. It's quite stable and we can program its assembly. And that's, of course, the big plus. You can program assembly with near atomic precision. So how do you fold the piece of DNA? Let me take out a piece of Velcro tape, actually, because I really like to use that for explanation. So imagine you had a long piece of Velcro tape, which is basically a long single strand of DNA. It's very floppy. But now imagine you had a short piece of DNA, a short piece of Velcro tape, which matches the long one at one side and say at a distant end. By doing that, you can pull the long piece together and now you've got something like a loop just made from Velcro tape. Now with many short pieces of Velcro tape, you could essentially fold the long piece up into any shape. And here this is a bit broken but you see you can make a flower or a clove (laughs) by attaching a few pieces of velcro tape together and this is exactly how dna origami works you take a long single strand of dna and you fold it up using short pieces which we call staples the four letters that form dna they're a t g and c they like to stick to one another g always sticks to c and a always sticks to t and these are known as the base pairs So if you use this knowledge, you can design sections of the DNA strand that will always like to stick to one another. And this would make the DNA automatically fold up on itself, which can be used to build any structure you like. So if I wanted to fold some DNA into the origami classic shape of a crane, how would I go about it? Today you just go online, you download a program which is actually available for free and in this program it's just a 3D drawing software so you literally draw the shape you want. So you can literally draw a single strand of DNA and then it appears in the 3D view. Once Kirsten has drawn the right shape she sends off the specifications to a company who then synthesise the DNA with the right pattern of base pairs needed. They then send it back to her in a small white box which can then be processed in the lab. This is the DNA room and as you can see it's not, it's not very exciting. There are lots of fridges and freezers which we use to store the DNA and I will go to one of those now and I'll show you the, the little box in which the DNA comes. In every single one of the wells here, we've got one DNA sequence. And now we can take a pipette and we would use this pipette to mix all the different sequences together, essentially. This is like no pipette I've ever seen. Oh, this has 12 uh, 12 (laughs) tips, so you know, so that you don't have to do them one by one, every single one. We just get 12 at the same time. You're so busy here, you need... 12-in-1 pipette. Yes, you know, we don't have a pipetting robot yet. (laughs) So once we've mixed all the bits and pieces of DNA together, we put them in a small tube like this one here. And then we put them into this machine, which looks fancy, but all it is is actually just an oven. So it's called thermocycler, but it just heats the DNA up, cools it down slowly, and as it cools down, you know, it forms the pre-designed shape. 
Why does heating it up and cooling it down help the individual strands form into whatever shape you've made? You just give it a bit of energy so that when the DNA is already coiled up a bit, you know, it can straighten out. And by cooling it down, you, you allow the DNA double helices to form. After seeing the lab, I was satisfied I knew roughly how to make a DNA crane. What I wasn't clear on is why anyone would want to do this. This is a great example of how, you know, something which might seem like art, which might seem like, you know, a scientist playing around, can be transformed into something real and into, into something which does have applications in the real world. So um, it is simply a way of assembling atoms with, with near atomic precision. And in my lab, we're using DNA origami to make small channels or pipes, which can punch holes into membranes and into the envelope which surrounds the cell. And we're doing that because 50% of the drugs that we currently use target channels in cells. So just imagine what you could do if you could create artificial channels exactly the way you want them. So it'd be a way of drug delivery? could be a way of drug delivery. It could be a way of simply understanding a process which is really fundamental in biology, namely the way cells communicate. As well as potential medical applications, the technique has also been used to build tiny basic computers and also nanoscale rulers. And while paper origami is hundreds of years old, DNA origami celebrates its 10th birthday this year. So new possibilities for applications are still being dreamt up. And as far as Kirsten is concerned, the sky is the limit. Like one day origami might even save a life, is what paper origami artist Robert Lang once said. And, you know, one day I hope the same may be true for DNA origami in a way. Kirsten Gerpfrick and her awesome 12-in-1 pipetta at the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge on the 10-year anniversary of DNA origami. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and Georgia Mills. Now, it's time for the main part of the show. And Georgia, how's your memory? I was going to say good, but I just got asked my age and it took me a while to remember. So I'm going to say fairly average. <laughs> that does sound pretty familiar. I mean, if you're anything like me, then, yeah, I, I can remember quite a lot of stuff, mostly the lyrics of 80s pop songs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we're all familiar with the idea of coming up to exams or tests and just cramming as much information into the brain as possible and praying that it will be there and come back out when the right time comes. Well, we're getting close to exam season again. And this week, we want to find out what's really going on up there. And are there any tips for those of us who, like Georgia, perhaps could do with a bit of an upgrade? So do join us as this week we take a walk down memory lane. First up, let's take a look under the hood and find out what's happening in the brain when we make a new memory. Dr Dean Burnett is a neuroscientist from the University of Cardiff and also author of the new book The Idiot Brain, and he's here to give us the lowdown. So, Dean, say, you know, I've got something like a, a new phone number I need to remember. How does that actually happen? What's happening when it, it goes into my brain? OK, so let's say someone's just written down their phone number or your phone number for you on a piece of paper and it's like an inspector gadget situation. It's going to self-destruct in 10 seconds. So you've got to try and remember it from uh, recall only. So the number itself, when you try and when you first experience it, it'll enter your short-term memory, which is like the part of your brain which is uh, actively processing information at any one time. People have a misconception that short-term memory is like a few minutes, few hours. Uh, no, it's actually 30 seconds to a minute maximum. It's very short. Anything more than that is technically a long-term memory. 
and it's supported by activity in the sort of frontal cortex, the frontal lobes. That's the front baby of your brain, right? Yes, bit exactly. the bit of the front of their head. Yes, the, the bit of front. You see straight on. It looks like it's talking about a pair of Ds back to back, and it's very. Um, it's very active, it's very ongoing, it's, it's processing information all the time. It's not for storage, so I liken it to writing your name in a sparkler. You know, the information's there briefly, but then things happen to, to fade. And, and information's coming in all the time, so the, the space is needed for other things. So you've got maybe a minute to get it into the long-term memory. Kind of like taking a photo of that word written with a sparkler. You have to find some way of capturing it and keeping it for longer. What happens next, exactly. then? Well, um, the phone number, if, if we ask what we're talking about, it so it enters your short-term memory and it's sort of like a chunk of information. Chunking is what it's called. It's, it's like we can remember up to four chunks any one time in our short-term memory. Now, we need to attach enough significance to that and make it sort of salient enough so that it becomes important enough to be laid down in the long-term memory by the hippocampus. So this information feeds through into the hippocampus, which is the sort of central hub of the memory system. Just give us a quick description of the hippocampus. If I picture, like, my brain, my mm. head, mm. where's the hippocampus and, and what does that do? Uh, well, where is it? It's in the temporal lobe, which, if you think of the brain as a boxing glove, it's like the thumb and it's the inside of the thumb, so it's towards the centre, the other way the thumb. Yeah, right in the middle. It's, it's, it's an older area. It's right next to the, the olfactory centre too, which is one theory as to why smell is such a evocative oh, of memory. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's shaped a bit like a seahorse in cross-section, hence the name hippocampus. It's not about, you know, a holiday camp for large mammals. <laughs> and it is actually uh, sort of like the central processing centre of all long-term memory. Sensory information is fed into it, and the hippocampus takes this and combines all the important stuff and forms new memories by connecting you know, nerve cells together in certain ways to form synaptic connections. And each of these is what sort of represents a memory. So memories are basically nerve cells, nerve connections that are just knitted together as as the hippocampus decides, OK, we need to remember this. This is a phone number we need to remember. Hmm. And it will sort of knit together neighbouring nerve cells. And, and, and that's your memory. That's generally the accepted wisdom at the moment in that the certain... Con- combination of connections forms a memory in the way that you know certain patterns in ink on paper form a word so that's what we think is what memories are at the moment and these are constantly being made by the hippocampus all the time obviously because we are constantly experiencing things so say you know we've got as far as my phone number it's kind of gone into my hippocampus how then does it become something i could remember i can still remember my parents phone number from the house i grew up in Mm. so is that it's just still there or is that then stored in a different way those very very long-term memories um, it's still there, essentially. The, the, the very first one, you could argue that it's still there. But every time it's uh, retrieved or reactivated, you someone it might be actually forming a new memory, like for the incident itself where that memory is retrieved. Oh, it's kind of rewriting on top again, you know, just kind of colouring mm. it in a bit firmer. Yeah, or, or forming new connections with it. Because like, every time you use that number, you are experiencing it in a different way. So like you're telling someone you want to call you, like you know, someone you have taken a fancy to, and you say, well, my number is this, then that memory is going to be a lot more vivid. So that's connected to that as well. So it's always, it's been constantly shored up and reinforced all the time if it's a common memory. And could my brain get full? I mean, say, you know, there's lots of people who I fancy and I collect all their phone numbers. Is my brain going to get full of them? Um, well, logically, eventually it would. But as far as we know, no one's lived long enough yet for that to happen. It's actually got a fantastic storage capacity that the human brain has. We don't know what it is yet. It's way beyond our current scope to even really calculate it. So... Yes, it could, but don't worry about it, is the general gist. And then that's all the information that's in there. So when I want to retrieve a memory, what's happening? Are those nerve cells are just firing in, in the pattern that, that it originally went in? 
sort of yes unless it's been modified since that's another thing about human memory things if you remember things in different contexts you can constantly tweak your memories and adjust them that's a arguably a failing of biological memory it's not essentially rigid but say if you're in a certain situation where you need to retrieve some memory like you know your frontal cortex is doing all the conscious thinking again you think what happened there then and then sort of the the, the the pattern of connections is like uh, triggered, like the, the link between what you think about now and the memory you need is activated. And the more connections there are to that memory, then the more likely and the more able you are to retrieve it. And very, very briefly, we've talked about remembering things like phone numbers or you can imagine a fact for an exam. Hmm. Is there a fundamental difference between remembering those kind of things and then, for example, you know, I, I can remember the birth of my friend's child? Hmm. Yes, like uh, they, they believe the brain does categorise these in certain, in different ways, um, or at least we think of them in different ways. And that uh, one of the semantic memory—that's memory for just information. So knowing Pythagoras' theorem, knowing your niece's birthday—that is uh, semantic information. It's just information you have access to. Whereas the memory for learning Pythagoras' theorem, or the memory of the birth itself, that would be an episodic memory, which is actually memories of the actual events from your life themselves, which uh, you know, in which the information is contained. And that's constantly ongoing. Thanks very much. That's Dean Burnett from the University of Cardiff. And that's how we form memories. And it sounds like a complicated system as many different things can disturb the process from drug use to emotional state. But there's one thing that we now know is critically important for memory, and that's sleep. Connie Orbach has the story. It sounds quite otherworldly, doesn't it? Well, actually... This is the sound of our brain's orchestra. It's the patterns of activity of different parts of our brains as we sleep, whirring away, organising, filing and sorting our memories. And it was recorded by Dr Matt Jones's team at the University of Bristol. Well, it's funny stuff sleep because we tend to equate it, of course, with rest. But in fact, parts of the brain are more active during sleep than they are during wakefulness. In particular, a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is a central hub for integrating learning and memory, becomes very active during certain phases of sleep. As you probably know, human sleep is subdivided into non-REM, so non-rapid eye movement sleep, sometimes called slow-wave sleep, and REM, or rapid eye movement sleep. And these different phases are associated with different types, patterns of hippocampal activity. Now, the hippocampus is activated during wakefulness, so neurons in the hippocampus for example, encode information about new places that we visit and is then reactivated during subsequent sleep when those neurons that encoded new memories kind of come to life again. So you kind of replay your waking experience whilst you're offline during sleep. And it's this process which is thought to support the strengthening of memories and the sorting of memories, kind of sorting the wheat from the chaff, which things do we need to remember, which things are less important and can we therefore afford to forget. Well, so parts of the hippocampus are being activated specifically by location as we're moving around. And then as we sleep, we're literally replaying all of that in exactly the same order of of kind of brain cell activation as it was in the day. That's right. We're replaying those patterns of activity that encoded new memories during the day, but we're doing it at a different time scale. So um, in fact, the Patterns of activity that are replayed during sleep are replayed on a compressed timescale, about 10 times faster than they were during wakefulness. And that short timescale activity is thought to be important for driving changes in the strength of connections between brain cells that cooperatively encode these memories. Now, we know it's important for memory function because if you disrupt that replay activity, 
then you slow formation of memories. So is that all that's happening at this level of hippocampus place cells, or is there more than that? So no, no neuron and no brain structure is an island, and the hippocampus has to share all this information it's laying down in memory with other parts of the brain. For example, you know, certain parts of our environment might be particularly rewarding. So if you wander down a new corridor and stumble upon a big pile of chocolates and think, woohoo, then dopamine signalling in the midbrain, for example, is activated. And that dopamine signalling is also replayed during subsequent sleep in a way that coordinates with the hippocampus. So that might, for example, enable the brain to selectively strengthen particularly important memories about chocolate. Similarly, we know that over time, as memories mature, then they're integrated into other parts of the brain beyond the hippocampus into the neocortex, for example. So the neocortex is important for storing memories long-term, and that integration of memories across the hippocampal um, system and the neocortical system is supported by coordinated activity during sleep. We suspect that the way the brain deals with this is to use brain waves or neural oscillations as a kind of clocking mechanism to coordinate activity. The brain waves are acting almost like the conductor of an orchestra. So the hippocampus, when we're asleep, doesn't necessarily know when to do its stuff, and the neocortex isn't being told when to do its stuff by external stimuli. So instead, we have this internal conductor mechanism, these slow waves, which modulate the timing of the hippocampal activity and the timing of the cortical activity, and therefore bring the two into line, allowing the hippocampus to tune in to the neocortex and vice versa. In the day, we're processing information and and our brain cells in the hippocampus are, are kind of firing dependent on specific things that are happening. At night, we're then recoding that at a quicker pace to give us a strong memory, and that's happening whilst we're asleep. But on top of all of that, our hippocampus needs to go talking to other parts of the brain to to link up all of these different bits of information. And in order for it to know when to do that, we've got these huge ripples of brainwave activity, which are giving it a second-by-second, like a conductor coordination, telling it where to go. That's exactly right, yes. Wow, that sounds incredibly complicated, but, like, amazing. It sounds really awe-inspiring, I think, is probably (laughs) where I want to go with that. awe-inspiring indeed. I just can't get over the complicated patterns of activity that are happening through our brains all the time. It's so much more than I can even take in. Maybe I should be giving sleep a bit more credit. Sound of your brain. That was the naked scientist Connie Orbach with the University of Bristol's Dr. Matt Jones. Now, that is not the end of the story, so try not to doze off as Connie will be back in a moment. Hello, Greya here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly. You can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Georgia Mills and she's Katani. And in case you've already forgotten, this week is all about memory. It is indeed. And we've just heard how sleep plays a pivotal role in making our memories strong and resilient. But, well, it's a bit complicated. And if something's that complicated, then there are many ways for it to go wrong. 
Most people don't realise, but one of the most debilitating symptoms of schizophrenia is actually the mental impairments, including memory loss. So has this got something to do with sleep? Connie stayed in Bristol to find out. A sleep lab is exactly what you might imagine. It's a bit like a hospital. There's a bed, a bathroom and, well, then there's all types of kit to monitor your muscle tone, your brain waves, eye movement and infrared cameras to watch you while you sleep. So maybe a bit more creepy than a hospital. And next door to this room is where Ulrich Bartsch and his colleagues would sit for hours on end, night after night, measuring their patients' quality of sleep by the different patterns of brain waves detected. When we sleep, we cycle through different stages. First, very deep, slow wave sleep. Next, we move into lighter sleep, characterised by bursts of spikes called sleep spindles. And finally, REM sleep, smaller, faster waves. OK, but I know what you're thinking. What on earth has this all got to do with memory and schizophrenia? Sleep has been shown in the past 10 or 20 years to be important for memory consolidation. And, and one of the biggest problems in uh, mental health, or particularly in schizophrenia, is the uh, treatment of cognitive deficits. And one intriguing fact that has long been anecdotally been reported is that schizophrenic patients will initially start losing their regular sleep pattern before their psychosis kicks in. That is mainly uh, the loss of one particular oscillation that occurs during sleep, and these are these spindle oscillations that I've mentioned earlier. Schizophrenics show less of one particular type of sleep wave, the spindle. And as Matt said, patterns of brain waves are important for memory. But how do we show that that's really what's behind their forgetfulness? Well, that brings us back to the sleep lab. Ulrich takes healthy people and pre-symptom schizophrenics and gives them a simple movement task. Thinking I had an opportunity for a fun test, I decided to give it a go myself. I had to type out a five-digit sequence as fast as possible over and over again. 14132, 14132141412141321413214132. You get it. I did this 12 times with a break between each trial. Over the 12 tests, people improve, but the real kicker is that after a night's rest, when they do the task again, they have improved a lot more. In the motor task, I think you can reach up to um, 30-40% improvement. But what about schizophrenics? Well, interestingly, when they sleep, they don't improve at all. So the spindles uh, that, we've, that I've mentioned earlier are in fact correlated with the amount of improvement that you show the next morning after you slept over learning a motor task. So the more spindles you have, the better your improvement, is that right? Yes, that's correct. If I remember correctly, you were saying that in schizophrenia, that schizophrenics have less of these spindles during sleep. And so what does that mean when you get schizophrenics to do this task? So they, uh, first of all, perform much worse on the motor sequencing task. So their initial learning is already lower. So they would, be, they would have difficulties with motor coordination. But also, if they would sleep for a night and then wake up the next morning and be tested again, they would not have improved in that particular task. Not have improved at all? They wouldn't have improved at all. Of course, there are some participants who do better than others. Uh, but on average, if you take a, a, a relatively large group of schizophrenic patients, they would show little or no improvement. The idea is that because they have less spindles, they cannot 
process the information that they've uh, taken up during a day as well during sleep. And they can therefore not strengthen these memories during sleep and then cannot show improvement in the task the next morning. Now we know that, what can we can we do? Can we just, I don't know, get them to sleep more instead of eight hours sleep a night? Why don't we get them to do 10 hours of sleep a night? Unfortunately, it's not that easy because you need the right type of sleep. So as we said, there are different stages and sleep spindles are particularly characteristic of that particular sleep stage. Uh, in the case of schizophrenics, Uh, there are other things that we could do. So there are other uh, things that we can make the sleep more continuous. So most schizophrenic patients will have fragmented sleep. But also we could try and bring back some of the missing oscillations, if you will. So there might be a way of using pharmacology, uh, the right pharmacology, the, the right sleeping pills to bring back the right oscillations during sleep. Another promising concept for enhancing oscillations During sleep is actually electrical stimulation or magnetic stimulation. So a recent technology has emerged where people can use uh, magnetic pulses, which is called transcranial magnetic stimulation, to actually induce activity patterns in brain waves in the brains of healthy people, but also is, is beginning to be used in, in uh, clinical populations. Clearly sleep and memory are intrinsically combined, impossible to separate. But what about the rest of us? I asked our sleep expert for a few tips. If you have to take in a lot of information and you have to remember it the next day, it's probably good uh, to have either individual naps in between in the afternoon. So that will definitely help your brain to pack the influx of information nicely. In individual naps between, uh, between study, who knew that the students had it right all along? Um, yes, <laughs> they were doing the right thing. And especially the young brains need even more sleep than the older brains. I'll tell my boss, start a petition to get beds put in at work. Yes, I well, I, if only <laughs> I, would be, I would be happy to sign a letter if you, if you need some support. More naps all round. That's Dr Ulrich Bartsch from the University of Cambridge. We just heard how we should all be getting a good night's rest, but often we don't. In fact, news came out this week that on average the British are getting an hour's less sleep than they should every night. So, whilst we've all got busy lives, is there anything else we can do to boost our brains? Well, unless you've been under a rock for the past few years, you may have noticed an increasing obsession with the apps that promise to train your brain with a series of different tasks. These apps or games usually come with a price tag, but are they worth shelling out for? Dr Adam Hampshire from Imperial College London joins me now to explain. So first off, Adam, what are these apps actually trying to improve? Researchers have been working on a variety of approaches to cognitive training that are being applied in these sorts of apps. Now, one of the most popular areas of research focuses on trying to increase what psychologists refer to as working memory capacity. This is essentially how much information a person can actively hold and process in mind. So the idea there is that through exercise, this capacity could increase, rather like if you slot more RAM into your computer. Now, there are simple and complex variants on this scene. For example, one might be asked to hold sequences of numbers, images or spatial locations in mind across some delay. So I might say to you, for example, repeat the sequence 189, 3574. In more complex working memory training, there may be distracting stimuli or multiple different tasks that a person has to try and perform at the same time. 
Now, as you practice and get good at the task, you get uh, better at it and the difficulty level is increased. So the idea is it's a little bit like going to a gym and, and upping the level. I've had a go on a couple of these games myself and they're quite fun, but is there any evidence that they actually do anything? Well, that's actually a very controversial question. So a major problem is that there are many poorly validated products out there on the market. Now, the aim with that type of training is to exercise and improve core working memory capacity. But of course, anyone can practice and get good at a specific task. That's just learning. If it's going to be useful, the training really needs to lead to general improvements that extend beyond the training task itself. And for the most part, products that are out there and are available haven't really been validated properly in in that latter respect. Um, I've got a bit of a unique perspective on this uh, question, actually, because I've been involved in research that's shown positive and null findings. For example, a few years back, I was involved in one study in which we tried to cognitively train around about 11,000 individuals using the type of training that was being made commercially available. And we found participants got good at the train task, but they showed no generalised improvements whatsoever. However, subsequently, when we tracked and trained older adults using the same tests, we found that there were generalised improvements. And this data was published just last year. So to my mind, um, that, that study is actually some of the best evidence to date that cognitive training can sometimes have general, generalised sort of benefits. A sort of take-home message there really is that certain forms of cognitive training may help certain populations. But that said, training in young, healthy adults, it might just not work. But on the, on the other hand, it may be perhaps possible to try and slow memory decline in older adults. That, that area is uh, really very um, active in research at the moment. So to sum up these games, for someone like me, I might do a Sudoku every single day. I'm going to get super, super good at Sudoku, but my memory and my maths and things like that, I'm not going to see an improvement. But you have found this kind of improvement in some select proportions of the population. So should I be spending my time just playing a fun computer game instead? Well, that's actually quite an interesting question in itself. Uh, So I've run a number of studies uh, where I've just screened uh, large-scale cohorts from the general population. And funnily enough, I've found that individuals who say they do brain training, presumably with commercial packages, show no advantage whatsoever. Individuals who say they play normal computer games tend to be a little bit better in terms of their working memory and reasoning ability. So, of course, that's, a, that's just a large-scale cross-sectional cohort study. We, we can't infer cause and effect uh, relationships from that type of data. But it's, it's quite interesting. It sort of goes against the zeitgeist that brain training is good and other computer games are perhaps somehow bad. I think it's a promising area of research at any rate. I'm going to use it as an excuse to um, keep playing my computer games. Thanks very much. That was Adam Hampshire from Imperial College London letting us know that when it comes to training your brain, you might need more than a nap. Well, now it's time to get your brain round our question of the week. Greg Jackson has been going in circles trying to find an answer to Jonathan's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Is it technically possible for two planets to share the same orbit? Let's jump straight in here with Dr Stuart Higgins from the University of Cambridge. In theory, yes. Well, now that we've got that straight... Only joking. Astronomers actually have a special name for these things. Astronomers call such systems where two objects are orbiting around each other with a common centre between them binary systems. 
You might have heard recently about a binary system of two black holes whose fingerprint was discovered in gravitational waves measured by the LIGO experiment. In that case, the two black holes were spiralling into each other, merging. But could it be possible for a less destructive scenario to occur with two planets? Well, first of all, it's actually worth noting that when the Moon orbits the Earth, it's not just the Moon moving. The mass of the Moon has enough gravitational pull to also influence the motion of the Earth. However, if you imagine drawing a line between the centre of the Moon and the centre of the Earth, the point on that line about which the Moon and Earth are rotating is located deep inside the Earth, very close to the centre in fact. So while the Moon does cause the Earth to wobble about a bit, because the Earth is so much bigger than the Moon, it's essentially as though the Moon is just moving around the Earth. Whereas when we think of a binary system, say between two more equally matched objects, if you were to draw an imaginary line between these, the point on that line about which they're rotating wouldn't be inside either of the objects. They're both rotating around a point of empty space. And a classic example of this is Pluto and its moon Charon. Because they have roughly similar masses, Charon is about 12% the mass of Pluto, the impact it has on Pluto's orbit is much greater than, say, the moon's orbit on the Earth. This means that Pluto and Charon slowly rotate around a point in space. It looks a bit like an adult swinging a child around in the playground. The adult's feet remain at the centre of the rotation, but as they lean back, their head is also rotating around their feet, as is the child. OK, spinning children till they're sick is one thing, but what I wanted to know is, have we ever actually seen the rocky equivalent out there in the universe? Well, in 2012, astrophysicists using the Kepler Space Telescope observed something even more complicated than that, a pair of planets orbiting around a pair of stars. Imagine two suns orbiting closely around each other, and then two planets at different distances orbiting around those rotating suns. If you were standing on the surface of one of those planets and looked up at the sky, you'd see two suns, like the famous fictional planet of Tatooine from Star Wars. Science fiction turns to science fact. Great. I love it when that happens. But that's only one example. Is there any other evidence that hint at these binary planets? Well, according to Stuart, we should be thanking our lucky stars. In 2014, scientists from the California Institute of Technology developed a computer simulation that suggests that binary systems of two Earth-like planets are also possible. There you have it, Jonathan. In theory, yes, but we're yet to find too many examples. So watch this space. Big thank you to Stuart Higgins, who helped us out with this one. Next time on Question of the Week, we're hot on the trail of Lebenhang's predicament. Why do we get hiccups when we eat spicy food? What do you reckon? Email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join the debate on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. That brings us to the end of the programme. Thank you very much to Connie Orbach for production. Do join us next week when we'll be asking why is conservation so difficult? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STSC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.